0: hi and welcome to the dress i channel we are so glad you're joining us god has a place and a purpose for you and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much he loves you thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message well good morning how we doing guys good it's good to see a video with some sound on there we were going to just make you guess on the announcements but um good news we'll handle those a little bit later because we do have some exciting stuff happening here. My name is Sean, as you uh, probably heard uh, beforehand, um, and I'm just pumped that you guys are here today. I think what's happening in our church is that you're coming at a really good time. Uh, there's a lot of really incredible things that are beginning to happen uh, here at our church. There's some stuff I'm going to tell you about here in a few minutes, and there's some stuff I'm going to keep a secret that you're just going to have to hear about in a couple weeks. Um, but I want to especially encourage you to be here the next two weeks. We are wrapping up uh, this series called Jesus, God of the Impossible, as we've gone through the Gospel of John uh, for the first six chapters uh, or so, we'll have seven chapters by the time we're done, and we're actually going to cover the next section of John, when everybody's mad at Jesus, um, coming up on uh, toward Easter, actually, next year, which will be really fun, playing right into the big celebration that is Easter Sunday. But with that, the next week, that first beautiful, wonderful, incredible, God-given Sunday in the month of August... We're going to do something really special. We do it uh, every year. It's called Vision Sunday. And so if you're here and maybe you started coming in the last few weeks or last few months and you uh, haven't had a chance to go to Growth Track, and so you're wondering kind of what the future plan for the church is and maybe a little bit of where we've come from, it's going to be a great opportunity for you to hear. Uh, from a lot of people in our church over all the kinds of different ministries that we have, the things that are growing and coming, our financial plan of kind of where we think the Lord is leading us over the next year, and what that looks like uh, as well, and kind of as we continue to push through what it is that God has uh, done and is planning to do for us here. Um, Including next week, we're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which is always a really sweet Uh, opportunity as well. And so we love, love, love for you guys to be there uh, with us. So um, if there's one thing though I can tell you that we've learned over the last year especially is uh, really what it means to trust in the Lord's provision, right? You guys have ever been there before where you're at a point where you say, okay, like if something doesn't shift, everything is going to fall apart. Y'all ever been there before? It doesn't have to be financial. It doesn't have to be um, something necessary like with school or a job. Just a moment in time where you're looking at an impossible situation. You're going, okay, if something doesn't change, everything's going to fall apart. And I'm going to be standing all by myself. And then people are going to put it on Facebook. And then everyone's going to know how terrible I am, right? Because that's, that's the next steps that we say, right? It's like, well, gossip, gossip does still happen on street corners, but it also happens on Facebook which I've learned that, right? Twitter is where you go to argue those things with each other um, and to be really mean. But uh, yeah, and you get to this point where it's like, if something doesn't shift, I'm going to be all alone. Everyone's going to know I'm a failure, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I think what we've learned over the last year, especially, is that same idea of, of trust and, and provision. And it's not even just in church balance sheets and if it's your first time here or your second time you're like oh churches church is only talk about money and here i am i've said it twice now e- be easy all right hang in there you can just drop your checkbook in the offering at the end it'll be right in the back um we'll just i'm really good at copying signatures it's fine so i'm um, just kidding that's a joke and now some of you oh you're still here good okay well pushing forward. No, um, so it's not just in my own life or like a church balance sheet, but what I've actually uh, been able to see and what some of our staff has been able to see and our small group has been able to see and celebrate is that we've seen that happen in the life of the congregation of our church and the extended family of that congregation as well. That, that's, the, that's the really cool thing about it. I wish I could go through all the stories That that I've seen and the things of people in this room and not in this room and extended families of people in this room where we've seen where the Lord, like it was up to Jesus to do something or everything was going to fall apart and the Lord delivered in a way we never thought possible. It's a pretty incredible thing that happens because what I've found is that when you get to a point where you can't do it on your own anymore, where you can't will something into existence, then that's the point where we release control and typically where the Lord steps in and takes care of business for you. I was uh, listening to a podcast, I don't know, sometime this last week, the last few days have been kind of a blur, but I listened to a podcast driving around and there was this guy being interviewed and his name is Hotep Jesus, which I thought, okay, this guy already has a pretty interesting view of himself. Um, (laughs) And he said, you know, what happens is I get into the universe and I just will these things into existence. I speak them into existence and they happen. And I thought, I was in the car. Listen, this is what being a pastor is. I was in the car by myself, driving, going down 385, like, nope, bad theology. Nope, that won't work. Nope. Lying to yourself, like, yelling at no one, right, except indirectly him through a podcast. I'm like, that's not how it works. Can't do that. Not gonna happen. And and what, what I think that comes from is because I've seen so many impossible situations that have come up. And we, all we've had to do, all we've been able to do was rely on Jesus to step in. And when he does, we realize how we actually don't will anything into existence. Now, it's, I am not in control. You are not, I hate to tell you that right now, but you are not in control. And if you want to know that for sure, I want to encourage you, go get on 25. Just go 60 miles an hour and take your hands off the steering wheel, see what happens, right? Anybody sign up to do that later? That's what I thought. Okay, so I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into John 6 together, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Let me pray. Father, you're good, and I pray that as we dive into the Scripture this morning, as we take a, a few moments here to um, really consider what it means to watch you work miracles and watch us step out of the way, I pray that you would convict our hearts, but that you would do it in, in humility and in love, um, and, in the same way that a parent disciplines their child, into a place of safety, I pray that you do that for us as well. Help us to approach us with open hearts, with freedom from the gospel, and help us to see in our own hearts if there's anything that we need to give back to you. Meet us where we are, and in your name we pray. Amen. So what I've learned in this, and what we're going to see in just a second, is that there's this shift that happens between impossible situations and answers. And, And the shift that we talk about is Um, It's between hoping that God will deliver us, right, if we just believe enough, into knowing that God's deliverance occurs within his plan as we learn to trust his providence. That's the shift that happens when we go from me and my power and my ability into trusting God to do exactly what it says he's going to do. It's this complete shift of learning to trust his providence. And here's what that means. It's that by when we trust God's plan for us, when you trust God's plan for you and what he has written for you, we get this opportunity to experience this idea of providence, of him writing the story and taking care of us and giving us what we need. We get a chance to experience that. And as we do, that helps us relent our own need for control that we have. Now, if I was someone who controlled everything, if I didn't learn this lesson in a very hard way multiple times, I probably would be somewhere like in the middle of Iowa doing sports commentating for some single-A baseball team, being miserable, dodging tornadoes. That's probably where I would be. But as as we see God's providence work, and as we're going to see in this miracle, what really changes is that we learn to relent that need for control that we have. Because when we have that control and we operate in that control, guys, we end up like crashing our cars into brick walls, wondering how we got there in the first place. And, And I see it over and over and over and over again. Because when we're left to our own devices, we will mess it up. And so I want to start this today with asking you a question. What impossible situation are you in right now? And do you actually believe that if you can let go of control, that God is capable of working it out? That's where I want you to sit today. You know, Jesus talks about having the faith of a as big as a mustard seed. We could move mountains, but the reality of that isn't if you have enough faith to will something in, it's do you have enough faith and trust in Jesus that he can do something impossible. That's the difference here. And so that's what I want to ask you. Do you believe God is capable to work that out if you can just relinquish that control? So some context here as we dive into John 6. Uh, this is uh, right off where we left last week. We're about one year prior to uh, the final, or the final supper, <laughs> the final countdown, sorry. The last supper, Or we're, we're one year away. We're celebrating the Passover. And other than the resurrection, this very famous miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one outside of the resurrection. So probably a pretty big deal if all four authors felt like it was important to note. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you read 5,000, as you're going to see multiple times to us, what I want you to actually picture is 15 to 20,000. Because in these times, it would only record the men, right? So I'm sure we're just a few months away from California going through and changing all the Bible as well, making it people. When they do, I just hope they make it the 15 to 20,000. That's a political joke. I'm sorry. We've lost our 501c3 now. Um, But it's actually probably 15 to 20,000 people. So imagine instead of something like uh, the Bilo Center, move it up to um, like a Major League Baseball, like the new Atlanta Braves Stadium. I think they have like 40,000, so it's whatever. But much, much larger crowd, right? That's what's happening here. And so here's what we see. Chapter 6 verse 1. Um, it should, it'll be on the screens. Also, it's on the app. If you have our app, you can follow along. I made a really fun little fill-in-the-blanks. You can just drop in. This is what it says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover the feast of the Jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him Jesus said to Philip Where are we to buy bread so all these people may eat See even back then church people like to eat so that's exciting He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do Philip answered him 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, pretty famous story like there's a good chance you probably heard of this no matter what your background was in church maybe you hadn't but it's a pretty big story people know right they even like to kind of uh, say things kind of attribute to it talk about a miracle you know I I remember as a kid whenever I'd open up the pantry and my brothers and I'd eaten all the food I'd look at it and mom would be like we're gonna have a five five fishes and loaves or a five loaves and fishes moment right and you're just going I don't know what that means when I'm seven but that's cool um, but then there was always enough spaghetti. It's kind of great. Um, that's kind of what we're, what we're thinking here. Like, this is a story everybody knows, but it's actually some really important context as we talk about what it means to follow Jesus and to trust Jesus today, and that he actually is a God of the impossible. Even from the first verse, so this is what's happening, give you a little more context. Verse one says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So... Um, Here's one thing that's kind of important, and this is why I'd recommend to you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, get one. If you don't have means to get one, talk to me, and we'll get you one. And start looking up some commentaries and things so you can get a little bit of the context of what's going on, because if we just flew through this, we would miss a very important thing. Um, the after this moment, as we read, we just think like, okay, well, that was, John 5 was on a Tuesday. This must be you know, a Thursday afternoon, right? Kind of the how things happen. But really... If you go back and, and check out the original language, that's actually about a six-month time period. So people, scholars actually think this is probably between six and nine months after John 5. And some pretty important stuff had happened in those moments that we will learn about by checking the other Gospels. For instance, one of the first things that's happened is Jesus, in this time period, has sent his disciples out two by two, Right? Sent them out and said, hey, go and deliver people, heal people, do miracles, spread the gospel. And so they've gone and come back, and they're pumped. They're excited. The first time Jesus sent them, it didn't go so well. The second time Jesus sends them, they're like, oh my gosh, Lord, we were out there and like demons were listening to us. People who were sick were being healed. All these miracles were happening. It was absolutely amazing. And so Jesus is excited. And then right after that, he finds out that his best friend, John the Baptist, was beheaded because a teenage girl wanted him to be. Literally, John the Baptist uh, spoke out against King Herod, who was actually a sub-king, he was still under the Roman authority, who divorced his wife because he saw something he wanted better. John the Baptist said, hey, that's not okay. So, you know, Herod did what Herod does and threw John the Baptist into jail. And then as he got drunk at a party, his daughter came up and was dancing because, you know, every good father wants their daughter seductively dancing in front of a bunch of powerful men, right? Right? And no, don't, no one amen that. Yeah, I, I've told you before, I've actually eyed some of your kids who are hanging out with my daughter in the kids' ministry. I'm like, I'm just, you're on a list. I just want you to know, right? I'm watching you, I'm watching you. But as this daughter dances, the king is all excited. He said, listen, I'll give you whatever you want. You're making me so happy, up to half of my kingdom. And she goes, I just want John the Baptist head on a platter. And he goes, uh-oh, okay. So he has John the Baptist beheaded and it actually leads into the shortest verse in all of Scripture, which if you're doing Bible trivia on Tuesday at 13 Stripes, maybe it'll be a good thing for you. It's Jesus wept, two verses, two words rather than one verse. And it's because Jesus was weeping over the loss of his friend. And so that's what's occurred in the six-month time frame between what we went through last week and what we went, are going through this week. Jesus has spent time in deep joy and deep sorrow. And what we learn about this is that we see Jesus being an introvert, being tired, and he sees the crowd coming. And so what does Jesus do? He goes up the mountain. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm, I'm not good. Peace out. I'm done. I need some rest and relaxation. All of you guys in here who are introverts right now are just amening and hallelujahing. You would do it out loud, but that would draw attention to you and you don't want any attention. So you're holding it in. That's okay, the Lord still knows. My favorite part of right now, and I will never point this out, who they are, but three people looked at their wives and were like, yeah, that's right. And the wives just shook their heads and like, shut up. Um, It's great. This is what we see, verse two, and a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, and now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here's the first thing I want us to learn and focus on this morning as we talk about what happens in miracles. It's something that I think we need to understand is that if we are following Jesus for the wrong reasons, it will always lead to a shallow faith. Notice what happens. Jesus is there. He sees large crowds of people. He knows that they are following him because they want something from him. So what does he do? He leaves those people and he goes to be with his disciples, with the people who are following him to death. Now that's something we don't typically talk about, right? Because our view of Jesus is, well, Jesus is really loving and doesn't want to be mean to anybody. He loves everybody all the time. He's a little girly looking, right? He's kind of just does this all the time. He's like, whatever. That's, that's our view of Jesus, right? I've even heard, like, maybe you've seen the, the Oprah interviews with other pastors. She goes, well, I know, like, my Jesus would never do this. My Jesus would never talk about hell. I'm like, well, I don't know where you got your Jesus from. Um, the book of Oprah, I would imagine, But like, here's a very real moment of Jesus where there are thousands of people coming because they want something from him. And he's like, I'm going up the mountain with my friends. I got to be with them for a little while. Because what we've got to know and understand, guys, is that following Jesus for wrong reasons will always lead to shallow faith. Always. If you follow Jesus because of what you can get out of him, I have bad news for you the moment he doesn't operate in the way you want him to is a moment your faith will break down because your faith wasn't in Jesus. Your faith is in what you could get out of Jesus. And that is not redemptive salvation. See, the crowds are following him because of signs and miracles. They've seen and heard of all these things he's been doing, all the things we've talked about in this series of healing blind and broken people demons and sick and removing those and restoring people they're hearing all of these things and jesus is aware of that see jesus is aware that people need signs because of their fragile faith and and if you're walking through here and you're saying i in order for me to trust and believe jesus i need some miracle to happen and here's how it happens i've got news for you that is going to let you down it will Jesus himself, I I quote this all the time because I think we need to always have it in front of us. Jesus himself says that there will be trial and tribulation in this world. That's what he says. We have to stop allowing this theology to perpetuate through our churches that Jesus is a magic pill that just makes your life go right. It's, It's the total opposite. He says, in this world, you will, like, this will be hard for you. And when you follow Jesus, I, this is unpopular, but here we go. It gets harder. Because <laughs> you've got to stand up for things that other people would just let go by. go by. But the second half of that verse is, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. And, and that's why this is incredibly dangerous theology. Because if Jesus is only worthy of your trust because of um, you being impressed with his abilities... Then, then you make him a magician in a box instead of a Lord, the Lord. If, if your relationship with him is, him is based off of what you get from him, then, then when it's time for you to submit, when it's time for you to follow and have faith in him, that's going to run dry and you're going to break that's why we, we would have no problem filling the seats of churches in America and preaching gospel if it was like, hey, come to church. Uh, God is going to erase all of your doubt. He's going to uh, give you lots of money. Your marriage is going to be awesome. Your kids are going to listen. And all the people at your work are suddenly just going to be like, whatever it is you need, sir, I can tell you follow Jesus. Allow me to be more for you. Right? But y'all, people would be begging for church. I went to Upcountry Provisions uh, yesterday or Friday, whatever it was, and I talked to this lady. We're talking about what you'll hear in a few weeks um, about when college students are back and fall is here having a second service, so I'll let that marinate for a little while. And I asked this lady, I was like, hey, you know, if you were to come to church, would it be a night service? Would it be another morning service? Would you do this? And she looked at Mikey and I, and she was just like, yeah, I don't go to church. And for half a second, I was like, Well, will come to our church, but... The other half was like, well, of course, because probably what you've seen on Sundays walking out, people walking out of churches and coming to hang out with you is a bunch of people who are hangry because the pastor didn't shut up fast enough. And we rushed to church and so we want food and we don't care about you as a person and we're not demonstrating Jesus very well. And we've allowed this kind of pervasive theology to come in where we just say, if, if God will show up with miracles and wonders, then we'll feel fulfilled and happy. And he'll prove himself worth following, but that's not the case. That's incredibly dangerous theology, guys. Incredibly dangerous. Because when he becomes worthy of trust only because we can be impressed with what he can do, then he's not Lord anymore. He's just a magician. When things get tough, He doesn't show up like you think he should, like you've defined he should, and that doesn't happen, then what happens is our theology breaks down. I've spent time with folks who don't believe in God because their main reasoning is, well, I had this moment in my life, right? Whatever that is, fill the blank with whatever you want to, because we've all had that moment. They say, I don't believe in God because I had this, and he didn't just magically fix it. He didn't make it better because my family had cancer, and, and it took their life because my son is now seeking out things that are destroying our family or because financially I've been falling apart and I I just needed this one thing for God to show up and he didn't, so he must be mad at me. And that breaks my heart because what we've allowed to happen is this idea that God's role is to step in and fix our situations magically and to make our life easier in the timeline that we deem necessary. And we call that trusting God. We say, all right, God, I've got this problem, and if you'll solve it by this day, uh, with this time, um, and with these six kind of waypoints, so I know that what you're doing is active, right, and good for me, then I'll trust you. Then I'm I'm good for faith. I'll walk it out. I'm with you. And when he does not we're like, well, God, you didn't do exactly what I said you wanted, so you must not care. I want you to try that with your spouse or girlfriend or children. Right? Just, Just throw some stuff out there. And when they don't do everything you do, I want you to consider if you treat them like you treat God. So we find ourselves at Passover. It's an event where God literally passed over homes in Egypt. So God's people, Israel, were stuck in Egypt. They were prisoners, they were enslaved. And as God has been progressively giving these plagues and making it harder for the people of Egypt to keep Israel stuck, God finally says, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. I want all of Israel to go and find the most perfect lamb they can. And he gives about 15 different ways of how you're supposed to follow step one, to do step two, to do step three. He says, but as you sacrifice the lamb, take the blood, put it over your doorpost. And then as I send a messenger, he's going to wipe out all the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, but he's going to literally pass over your house and it'll be safe. So the people of Israel do that. There's great mourning. Even Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world, loses his firstborn son, the heir to his throne. And finally, because of that, as Israel wakes up and they hear the loud cries of Egypt of their enemies and all of their families and all of their cattle and all the things they have are still intact, Pharaoh looks and he says, get out of here, go. I don't want anything to do with you. Go worship your Lord. Get out of here. So they're celebrating that moment where God has shown up, right? Where this miracle has happened. And that's the same moment that Jesus is here breaking bread and delivering the people of their, this momentary hunger. And so in this time, nationalistic zeal would be in full force. The people would have seen these parallel struggles between the situation they knew of the Old Testament and Moses. And, and now when they're under the harsh rule of Rome and Caesar And they would have seen Moses, as he led them through the desert for 40 years, and God every day gave them the manna, the bread that they needed to sustain. And then we would see Jesus sitting 15,000 people down on grass and taking a little boy's offering of five baskets of bread and some fish and continuously breaking them and blessing them until it overflowed and all the people are fed. And so it it would be logical to think that the people of the day as they're experiencing this miracle live in front of them would draw parallels and say, "Okay, well this is what we saw in the Old Testament with Moses and now it's happening in front of us, so maybe this is exactly what we've been waiting for. This is our magic pill, this is our deliverance. This is our hope." Because the people were actively waiting and hoping for this redemption, this Messiah to come. Because when it came, guys, when they were given the Messiah, when they were given the promise they have been waiting for for generations and generations, it meant that there was nothing again that would ever rule over them or control them. The dream of every six-year-old, freedom. Right? Right? I was in student ministry for like 15 years or 14 years whatever it was and I laughed every time I heard a middle schooler say, I just can't wait till I'm 18, I'm on my own. Do whatever I want. Like, yeah. (laughs) No, no, come back. Let's talk in five years. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be great. I'm excited for you. You're right, everything gets better. That's exactly what we see here. So continuing verse five. Scripture says, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that just means 200 days wages, right? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to give each of them a little bit. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish but what are they for so many? I, 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 love, I love that. It, it's so interesting to me that Jesus looks at Philip and presents the problem, right? That they're probably all thinking. And Jesus looks at Philip because Philip was actually from kind of near that town. So Philip would know, you know, where Publix was, I guess. And so he looks at him, he's like, so hey, um, where are we gonna get bread? To, or where are we gonna go buy bread to feed these people? And notice the problem is so much deeper than that, right? Like, first of all, Jesus, you have to have money to buy things. And I don't know if you remember, but you had just got done saying that you have no place to lay your head, you're not respected in your own town, you don't have a home, those things. It's like, and you want us to feed 15,000 people. It's so interesting that he looks at his disciples, he's like, hey, here's the problem, what are we going to do? Now, we would look at that and be like, well, Jesus, I'm um, kind of hoping you had a plan, uh, Seeing you do some pretty incredible stuff. Can you turn that fish into steak? You do a sirloin right now. He, he presents this problem to him. And so Jesus had him sit down. It's so cool that, that he says the reason that he asks them is to test them. Again, are we kind of blowing the thoughts of who Jesus is out of the water just by reading the scripture? I hope so. So Jesus... Took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. A southerner's dream. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So, point number two, what I want us to consider this morning is this that, that Jesus is the answer to the impossibility of the problem. Jesus is aware of each impossibility because he's also in control of each resolution. Like If you're a parent with children, this is going to resonate with you a little more, but I love asking my kids when I know what the answer is, right? I love leading them into that and see if they can get the right answer. Like, oh, like my daughter is four right now. She's incredible, gifted. Should be an Olympian in spilling things. Just really good at it, right? So she'll spill things and come to me and be like, "Daddy, I, there's there's Lucky Charms everywhere." Which then I tell him like, "Well, it's the Walmart brands. So they're not Lucky Charms. They're Lucky Charmios." But that's okay. Um, I'm like, "Well, Emma, what are we gonna do?" She's like, "Well, the dog is eating them." Great. And why is that? It's like I don't know. I know it's going to be okay, right? I know that my dogs have to go outside soon, but that's okay as well. And I can tell her, listen, all we have to do instead of freaking out about the Lucky Charms is just to go get them and put them back and get rid of them. And she's like, oh, oh, you're so smart, Daddy. I just love you so much. You're the smartest man alive. And I'm like, I know. Not every dad knows how to fix this problem right here, guys. Most of them would just let the dog eat, hope for the best, right? No, um, no. That's just microcosm, though, and I, I know it's funny to joke around, but that's a microcosm And what happens here. Is that Jesus is very aware of the impossibility because he's very aware of the solution, and he's waiting to see if his disciples who trust and know him know enough to say that he's going to solve the problem in whatever means he deems necessary. It's not that Jesus just wants to mess with them, right? Like, oh, we gotta feed all these people. Where can we go buy bread? That's not why he's doing that. In fact, Matthew 6 even says the same thing. Jesus says the words. He says, he, your father, knows what you need before you ask him. He is aware of your situation. God is not sitting on the throne going, well, wonder if I've got anything to clean up today. Hope those human creations don't screw everything over. Right? He's not surprised, but we treat him like he is because God has a plan within this impossible situation that you're living in. He knows, he's aware. Your opportunity and my opportunity is to trust him in the providence or to fight with him for control and then miss the miracle altogether. Those are your options. Instead of saying, "Why would God just allow us to struggle?" Right? Like, it's a consistent question, like why would a good God allow bad things to happen? But, you, but people, when we ask that, we don't want the actual answer. We want rationalization. If you look at people who ask that question, you're like, because the world is broken and everything around you, including your body breaking down, the lies and deception that you see, the friendships that are hard to maintain, money struggles, Things like earthquakes and natural disasters and people just being evil and against each other all occur because we are consistently as creation crying out and yearning for redemptive eternity. And so everything here is gonna be hard until we get there and that knowledge should drive you to where you wanna be with Jesus. That's not an answer anyone actually wants to receive when they say, why do bad things happen to good people? But it's the truth because you are built to yearn for eternity and redemption and wholeness. That's why everything's falling apart because it's not good people, it's broken people. It's people whose hearts are evil, who are just trying to do the best they can. It's not that God has mad or has forgotten us or doesn't want us to eat. See, what I'm learning is that the Lord may present these impossible challenges to you and I, In order that we might see what our hearts truly believe, what we might see, what our faith truly lies in, or what our lack of faith lies in. But what we have the opportunity in those moments to learn is that God does not do halfway deliverance. You don't get halfway redeemed. It's not a measure of, hey, God will do his part and you just try really hard to do the right thing and be a good person and he'll be like, well, you mixed with me, I guess you can come in. It's not how it works. He is a fully redemptive God. We see that in verse 13 and 14. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, I love this, this is indeed the prophet who has come to the world. Also, side note, notice the one person out of the 15,000 who brought the offering. Who was it? A child, a little boy who saw 15,000 people and said, this is what I have. Y'all, this is not a, um, this is not me asking you to tithe and give. Just, let's just eliminate that thought. I'm asking you to consider every step of your life. And every time you disqualify it and say, I've only got this little bit to give, whether it's money or heart or time or relationship or just whatever it is, why, why is it that we forget the offering of the child? Who all he did was say, this is what I have, and trust that God was going to do what he was going to do with it. See, we consistently tell God what we have isn't enough and won't matter. And all God wants to do is take what we have to give back and bless it and change people's lives with it. <clears throat> the third thing that we learned today is that Jesus offers an abundance in our everyday need. He gathered up and filled 12 baskets. And some clarity here, guys, let's not read past it, with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who'd eaten, right? He isn't like, they don't gather pieces and like, well, I've got a full loaf over here and a full loaf over here, a full loaf over here. Like they're bits and pieces, Right? My sister-in-law is a wonderful person, and she totally weirds me out sometimes, but she actually, when she eats, won't eat anything her fingers touch. It's true. You just heard my mom laugh because it's true. And I was with her uh, Friday hanging out, and we had this beautiful sandwich from two chefs, which is like they're delicious. And I saw these ends of buns with food inside them, and I was like, Bree, why didn't you eat that? And she's like, well, my fingers touched them. It's like, well, this is because I'm preaching on this this weekend and Lord allowed you to be weird so I'd have something to say here, but but that's that's the baskets of gathering, right? That's the abundance. Sometimes the abundance doesn't look real pretty in the way that you want it to look. Sometimes it looks like half-eaten pieces of stuff that are gathered in a basket together. That's what they find. They're literally picking up pieces. If you have kids, again, which there were kids there, half of them were probably soggy and kind of gross, right? Or like Chewed to look like buses and drawn through the through the dirt, but the abundance is still there. Jesus says, after all these have been fed, this is what is still here. It might not look like a exactly like you want it to. It might not look like a new Lamborghini, but it is abundance, and it is worth every bit of bringing you sustenance, and ability, and hope to persevere. And then my favorite type of response in verse 14, all the people said, well, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. No kidding. He just fed 15,000 of you with five loaves of bread and a couple fish. Maybe he's special. Just a thought. It goes back to the woman at the well who after Jesus lays down the law and is like, oh yeah, you've had these many husbands and even the one you're living with is not your husband. And her response is, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. (laughs) Yeah, you think. It's that same thing because what they would have seen like in, again, Deuteronomy 18, they would have sent Moses who is this deliverer who brings through, who, uh, through the Lord brings deliverance. Or the Lord through Moses brings deliverance for the people. And then he offers them bread and what they need for the day. And while they're going to the promised land, which they will eventually end up, well, the people at this Passover would see the same thing. They would see Jesus who is the Messiah, who's giving bread. And their hope is that he would then lead them into Their promise of freedom. But see, what Jesus does, guys, is he proves to consistently be more than a temporary solvent to your problem. And he shows that here. See, not only will Jesus give you exactly what you need, when you need it, but he'll provide more than enough for you. But guys, listen, it's hard to see that on the front end, isn't it? It's tough to see that when you're facing the issue, when you're facing the problem, when it seems impossible, it's hard to trust those things. But we see it time and time and time again. No one, no one outside of Jesus would have ever known that there would be enough food left over after feeding 15,000 people for 12 baskets worth of food. Nobody in that situation except Jesus knew what was to come. That's it. But, but that's exactly what faith is, guys. It's hope in the impossible before it ever becomes the possible. If you lay down what eternity is, what heaven is, and you actually write it all out and say, this is what it is, it would look like hogwash to anyone who said, I can make the world look like that myself. Because it is seemingly impossible. But what Jesus does when he brings redemption is he makes the impossible possible. If you knew what would happen prior to every bit of your situation, you would never have a need for faith. If you could plan out every step and follow every step in your own strength, you would not need Jesus. If everything made sense all the time, you would have no purpose for a Savior. But this is what Hebrews 11 says. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, By faith we understand the universe was created by God so that whatever is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then it continues to this incredible chapter called the Hall of Faith. Because if we didn't need faith, if we could plan everything, there'd be no need for Jesus. But when we trust God, we have more faith in the unknown outcome than we do in the impossibility that's staring us in the face. It's where we go from saying, I don't know what we are going to do to saying, I'm not sure what God is going to do, but I trust that he's already done it and that it's good. That's the shift of faith. In Genesis 22, one of the most impactful pieces of scripture I've ever read in my life, Abraham has been told by God to go on a mountain and sacrifice his only son, Isaac, that he's been waiting for 80 years for. And God says, now that he's grown and, and is a little bit older, I want you to take him on a mountain, and I want you to go lay him down the altar, and I want you to draw a knife through his chest and sacrifice him to prove you love me. Now, we, we waited. We had infertility struggles for years. It was really hard, and we finally had This son, I I couldn't believe that God would give us such an incredible gift. And every time I walk through this scripture, I think, I don't know that I'd have the guts of Abraham to go and put my son on an altar. But it gets so much harder than that. It's so much more heart-wrenching than just the idea of that. Because as you read through that scripture, this is what happens. Isaac, walking up the mountain with his father, knowing that they're going to sacrifice something, says this. He says, "Uh, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, uh, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Imagine you're Abraham. And your son asks you where the sacrifice is, and you know that you're walking to his death. You want to talk about impossible? Impossible. You want to talk about having nothing left of who you are, knowing you're marching your son to his death, and it's because God asked you and commanded you to do it, to test your faith, to see if you love him enough? You want to talk about unfair and being mad? But that's not what Abraham's attitude is. Here's what Abraham says, and guys, this is why it's so important when we recognize the stories like these amazing miracles to understand it's not your willpower that fixes things, it's God. is that Abraham's response is this. Son, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went on together. The only thing Abraham knew was that God called him to sacrifice and obedience. That's it. Sacrifice and obedience. But the other thing that Abraham knew and believed and why he is forever in scripture and why he is in the hall of faith and why he is someone that generations and generations and generations of people would love to be like and understand is because Abraham knew that God called him to the sacrifice, God called him to the obedience, God called him to the trust, and that in doing that, he would give exactly what he said he was, that he would either kill his son just as God asked and that God would redeem him and raise him from the dead, or that God would do what he did and offer another sacrifice instead. And as they walk up the mountain, they see a goat ensnared in the fence, and God says, you are faithful. That is your sacrifice. But I don't know if I'm walking up the mountain that I've got enough faith to see that, guys. But the fourth and final thing I want to leave you with today is this, that that Jesus, God is not defined by humanity's limited definition of him. It can never be God and. That's why we have it out front. It says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If anyone tells you it's Jesus plus anything else, then that person has no idea of understanding of who God is. They have a limited view of a savior because he doesn't need any of us. He just says, you are mine. So John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And all the injured say amen quietly in their hearts again. See, to the people, Jesus being an earthly king was enough. To the people, they were ready to, by force, take him and put him on the throne because for them, in their minds, they were his deliverer for the right now. And that was enough. That was good enough. And by But what Jesus knows is that being an earthly king is not the fullness of redemption. It actually limits him. And it makes him something that he's not. But guys, here's the truth today is that that Jesus won't be made into a shallow view or our perception of himself. Because he isn't just king over Israel a year from death. He is king over all things for eternity. And that there is no other place for him. The reason he is God of the impossible is that you can't have Jesus light. You can't have Jesus in what you want him to be. Jesus is either the line of Judah or he is nothing. And so, my question for you as we close right now is what have you allowed Jesus to be defined by? And what impossibility do you have that you have said is too big for Jesus to take care of? And we're going to take some time to worship here, guys. And I want to ask you very clearly: Is like, is it your control that you need to let go of? Is it your faith you need to? Is it your faith you need to apologize for and repent of? Or is it maybe you just need to be encouraged that he is exactly who he says he is, that he can take a little boy's offering of five fish and two loaves and change eternity forever? Let me pray. Father, you're good. And I thank you for stories like this where things change. I thank you that we can look deep into something where a young boy Marched in front of thousands, 5,000 men. Marched in front of the disciples who followed you and went to the king of the world and gave his offering and that you would use that to change everything forever. And so Father, my prayer this morning is that we would recognize that in our own hearts and our own lives. That we would understand that you are good and you are exactly who you say you are no matter what our our fears would lead us to, no matter what our hearts would attempt to control, no matter what it is that would step in the way of us relenting the control of ourself, God, I just pray you would remove it from us. I pray that you would reveal our heart to us and that in that moment, you would bring freedom for us. You bring freedom to know, for us to acknowledge you are exactly who you say you are, King. So, Lord, as we worship now, work within our hearts, convict us of our fears, and bring us redemption and redemption on the whole. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified, check us out online at trailside.church or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. and We can't wait to see you again soon.